This is a Rooster Teeth production. Is there such a thing as a good way to die? The Victorians seem to think so. Welcome to 30 Morbid Minutes. This is the podcast where we spend around 30 minutes, give or take, on a deep dive into various topics, places, people, and things of a morbid, macabre, dark, and downright grisly nature. I'm one of your hosts, Elise Willems. And I'm the other host, Jessica Vasami. And today we're exploring the Victorian obsession with death, mourning, and superstition. Right. So this is probably going to get pretty heavy, right, Jess? It's definitely going to get heavy, but it's nothing that we can't handle. Nothing we can't handle. We're talking about death. We're talking about child mortality rates. (laughs) Um, We are talking about some heavy topics, but we're going to approach it in a respectful but light way, I think. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll have a little chat at the end, too, maybe as a palate cleanser, lighten the mood a bit. Lord knows I need it. You know that I have bad dreams tonight, Elise. I can't. I have to watch the Disney Channel before I go to sleep at night, so I'm going to need just some calm, relaxing chatter at the end of this. Uh And I appreciate you being here, Jess. I appreciate you being here, Elise. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. This is my bread and butter. Anyway, to understand why Victorian society was so consumed by death, which it really, really was, it's important to know and understand how prevalent death was during this time, how much of a part of daily life it was during the Victorian era. It's not like I don't think about death on the daily, Um, but (laughs) the Victorian era is categorized as the 63-year reign of Queen Victoria, who was the queen from 1837 to 1901. And during this time, there was a ton of unprecedented innovation, growth, both at home in the United Kingdom and abroad. Yeah, I think a lot of people think of Queen Victoria as this widow who just kind of sat back on her throne and didn't do anything. But there was a ton of advancement uh, in terms of technology and just society at the time that she reigned. And we're talking grand steamships, world fairs happening, Alexander Graham Bell's first telephone patent. They even revolutionized the postal system. And this is one of my favorite things because the original penny post system involved the recipient paying for the letter that got sent to them. Have you ever heard of this, Jess? No, but it's just like, what if somebody doesn't want to talk to you, but they just continue to send you you messages and <laughs> right? letters and you're like, I have to pay for this. I don't want to talk to you. That's like you sending me messages. Yes, absolutely. But I have a much higher rate that you have to pay. (laughs) So in addition to this new post system and all these great advancements, it's safe to say that the world was getting much smaller in a sense as people left rural areas and they flocked to these congested cities. And in turn, they reaped the benefits of industrialization and all this technological change. But with the good came the bad. And I'm, of course, referring to the overwhelming amount of death and the incredibly high mortality rates at the time. It might sound like an exaggeration, but death was everywhere in Victorian England. You couldn't escape it. It was unavoidable in day-to-day life. Kind of like the Kardashians, actually. Exactly like the Kardashians. People, I think a lot of prominent Victorian era scholars make that same analogy, Jess. They absolutely do. It's where I got it from. (laughs) (laughs) And the primary cause of this high mortality rate that Jess mentioned was the highly contagious, poorly contained diseases that were flourishing in cities and metropolitan areas at this time. So this was because of the rapid urbanization that was happening. 
So you have factories that are producing more and more and more, and they're generating more pollution. And then you have cities that have more and more people coming in. So there's tons of waste, like actual physical human waste oh for people's bodies, which are getting, you know, it's getting thrown out of windows into the streets. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then you've got the industrial waste. So it's like, it's germ city, right? These cities are festering breeding grounds for uncontrollable disease outbreaks. And the main one that was happening was tuberculosis, which at the time was also known as consumption. And it is a highly infectious disease. Yeah, that's a big one. We could do an entire episode about how bad tuberculosis was and how it got romanticized during this time. Like when I think about tuberculosis, I actually think of the movie Moulin Rouge. Me too. That's what I I think of Satine because that's the whole thing. Yeah. She's spoiler for this movie that came out 20 years ago, but she's dying of tuberculosis. And I also think of the practice of how people with tuberculosis would get taken to these high mountaintops and wheeled out into the cold mountain air. And that was thought to be the the procedure that would help cure their tuberculosis. That's so weird. In addition to tuberculosis, cholera also just took hold and swept through London. And this was around 1853 to 1854. And this epidemic claimed over 10,000 lives with a total of 23,000 for all of Great Britain. This made it the worst epidemic of the 19th century by far. Yeah. And generally speaking, health in these cities was very, very bad. And in modern medicine, as we know it, Like it it was not a thing. There were no antibiotics. It wasn't even until the end of the 19th century that the medical profession recognized the concept of germ theory, microscopic bacteria. So um, (laughs) at least the doctors still knew to wash their hands, right, Jess? They didn't. No, medical hygiene was also in its infancy. So doctors were performing surgeries without washing their hands. So hygiene was um, optional. And if you were poor, you didn't have the luxuries that the rich had when it came to bathing regularly. Obviously, science is ever evolving. And Mm -hmm. I completely respect that there was no way that they could have known this microscopic germ theory was a thing. And yeah, even just in terms of like you're living in the city and you're poor and you've got five kids and the way that you bathe these kids is, you know, once a month they take a bath and the cleanest kid gets the first crack at the water and then Ugh. the next cleanest and then the the dirtiest. Like, you know, it's wild to think that that's, you know, compared to our current standards. But back to the mortality rate that you mentioned earlier, uh, not to add an extra dash of grim, but it is worth noting that the child mortality rate was also pretty astronomical at this time. And at its highest, the infant mortality rate was around 150 per 1,000 children in England and Wales. And just to give you some perspective on that, that's pretty high compared to 5.6 per 1,000 in the U.S. in 2020. There's a there's a big difference. Okay. Thank you for explaining that because I don't know math and that broke it down for me. Okay. Wow. You know death, right? I do know death. I just don't and know math. It's a lot. Um. So while many are finding death on their doorsteps daily, it's also worth noting that during this time, people aren't just experiencing death. They're actually reading about it more. So This is with industrialization and the influx of people to cities. Literacy rates are going up. More and more people know how to read and are starting to do it for recreation. They're buying cheap literature and entertainment. So an industry grows around that and the form of these pulpy cereals called Penny Dreadfuls. Have you heard of those, Elise? Yes. And I've thought about how I definitely would have been the audience for these Penny Dreadfuls at the time. Oh, for sure. This is the equivalent of me going to like creepypasta subreddits. 
at 3 a.m. and, you know, reading through kind of all these salacious stories, horror stories. Penny Dreadfuls were these really salacious reads. They detailed violent crimes and dark supernatural tales. And The Guardian described them as Britain's first taste of mass-produced popular culture for the young because they were these new freaky reads that people kind of flock to, you know? Yeah, they'd be in the young adult section of Barnes & Noble, right? They absolutely (laughs) would be in the the YA section. (laughs) But, you know, in addition to these penny dreadfuls, people also started reading about real-life crime and newspapers, like horrible true stories like Jack the Ripper. And, of course, we know with rapid urbanization and growth comes increased crime. So there's more happening and being reported on, and newspaper publishers are learning by sensationalizing these true-life crime stories that they can actually sell more papers strictly by appealing to a morbid interest and curiosity. You would absolutely... Pick up on that, Elise. That would be you. I would. And I mean, I guess this is still how our entertainment system works today by the sensationalization. Absolutely. I think we'll have to do an episode on Jack the Ripper. I mean, absolutely. There's just so so fascinating. There's so much in all the theories about who he was or could have been. And we still still don't know. Mm -hmm. But we'll get there. We need to rewind for a minute back to Queen Victoria who, by the way, was a major influence when it came to society's obsession with death during this time because of her own experiences with grief. When her husband, Prince Albert, passed away, she was so distraught that she basically spent the rest of her life mourning him. Like if you look at photos of her, you know, even at her son's wedding, she's dressed in full funeral garb in almost every single one. And she kind of became this trendsetter for the common folk on how to take notes to mourn. Uh, Jess, I was doing some deeper reading into Queen Victoria, who I didn't know much about, but is pretty fascinating. She was about four foot 11. What? And apparently like had a great sense of humor. Um, No. Yes. And though she never remarried following her husband, she didn't exactly have like suitors, but she had men like Victoria and Abdul that that I think was made into a movie. That's if you've heard of that story where like she had this basically servant from India who became like her closest confidant. And then when she passed away, her family sent him back to India and like scrubbed every every mention of him. It's fascinating. Oh, my gosh. But that's so awful. It, It was pretty awful. I mean, don't get me wrong. She was still like an imperialist. But oh, for sure. You know, absolutely. Yeah, she was pretty fascinating. But anyway, yeah, she she mourned her husband for the rest of her life. And she wore black every day for 40 years following his death and kept their home in the exact same state as it was on the day that he died. That's dedication. Absolutely. (laughs) She even went as far as to have her servants set out his clothes daily, clean his chamber pot. I wonder if anybody was using it, actually, and uh, bring hot water to his room for his shave. I couldn't mourn like this, but I would definitely expect to be mourned in such a fashion. (laughs) Wow. Okay, Elise, I see how it is. I want all my clothes retired and hung up like basketball jerseys. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Even the socks. All right, I'll do it. Even the socks. Do you have like a will or like anything to to like give us whenever you do die so we know exactly how you want things? (laughs) No, but I should write one in ketchup just for you. Well, Queen Victoria didn't need a will because she was the Queen of England and Mm -hmm. there there are already, you know, 
laws in place as to how her stuff's going to get passed down, I guess. Absolutely. Um, But yeah, so she was mourning her husband forever and she always had to feel like his presence had to be felt too. So she had statues and these homages put up all over the palace. And when a photograph was taken of the royal family, decades after he died, there would always be a bust or painting of Albert included. So I think it's safe to say that she was setting the tone for everyone at this time. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I can't say this enough, but during this time, death was everywhere. Everywhere. Whereas we in modern society might treat death, you know, with stigma or sensitivity, the Victorians were the opposite. They talked about it all the time. They were obsessed with it. And because of this open conversation and constant reminders of mortality, the way that people handled the death process grows into this um, like art of dying thing that has all these rules and expectations. Which is definitely different than how we live, because I think that now there's a stigma to talking about death, Mm -hmm. like us just talking about not having wills right now are turning a blind eye to something that we absolutely should do. Uh huh. Uh, is more common, though I do see things like if you're familiar with this book, The Swedish Art of Death Cleaning. Have you ever seen this? I haven't. It's it's this book where it just details how you can clean and prepare your life so your loved ones don't have to, you know, go through your home and go through the process of throwing away all your stuff. And I think that with like current birth rates or like people now aren't having as many kids, it might become more of a thing where like you definitely have to while you're alive, lay out more of what's going to happen in your death. Because you're not going to have, a lot of people aren't going to have anyone to clean up after them in that way. Mm -mm. To be that post-mortal caretaker, so to speak. Yeah, I think about that a lot. Because I will have you, you though. (laughs) Okay, because I was going to say, like, I may or may not have kids. I was just like, I'm going to just give it to Elise. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm praying that I go first. (laughs) Okay. I need need you to do this for me. (laughs) I need you to do this for me. Oh, no. We're going to be racing, racing (laughs) to the great beyond. That's what we'll call our (laughs) our memoirs. Uh, So, yeah, but the things were very different back in Victorian times because they had to have this on the lockdown. Okay. And people start living their lives not for the present, but with this intense preparation for their deaths so they can have what you mentioned, Jess, the art of dying what is known as this good death, quote unquote. And it's this Victorian idea of this good death that starts to gain a lot of traction. And people are preparing excessively and obsessively for their own demises. That's what we're, we're about to start doing. Which I think have- yeah, <laughs> Trying to raise each this, other. <laughs> after this, having this conversation, I think we're going to start doing too. Yeah. Um, but in their cases- It's mind-blowing, but this meant enduring poverty and scrimping and saving money to make sure that their death experience and burial met this standard of the good death. Yeah. Um, And let me interject and say that the definition of good here is subjective. So unlike today where death typically happens in hospitals and maybe a hospice, most deaths at this time happened in the home. Yeah. And imagine trying to do that now, like as a renting millennial, like I won't even take a bath in my bathtub. (laughs) Okay. It's not in a, you know, a state that I deem worthy enough, but to Victorians dying at home was what you wanted to happen. You wanted to die in your home under the best circumstances which were on your deathbed, surrounded by loved ones. And there was even this thought that the longer, slow, drawn-out death was the way that you wanted to die. So, like, the longer your death, the better. 
And the reasoning was that it gave your family more time to prepare and say goodbye and that the dying person could prepare themselves spiritually for the afterlife and also resolve any like outstanding frictions they had with family members or friends. And it just, it all kind of added to this like romanticized perception of what death needed to be. I get that. I understand what they were trying to do with this prolonged Mm -hmm. death, but like, how do you have the control to prolong your own death? Like you just lay in there on your deathbed and you're (laughs) fighting. fighting. Yeah. I I really think it's, I guess that people were fighting against it. It is a thing too, where you hear these stories of someone that, you know, they, they are holding on. They're waiting for that one person to show up and then they pass like six hours later or what have you. But there was this idea that like having these illnesses that actually gave you like a really painful, drawn out death, like a tuberculosis, was what you wanted. Yeah, it's like, oh, I hope I get TB. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, during this prolonged death, there were family members stationed at the deathbed around the clock, hoping to hear some poignant last words. Very, very romanticized. Rosebud. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and since death was uh, an open and ongoing conversation through life, the families already knew what the dying wanted their burial to look like and could execute on their wishes. Monster truck rally. No I question it. about I knew that it. Was gonna, I knew you were going to say that. Roll me out in Gravedigger. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, not to not to make light of things, but if things couldn't get even more grim, well... Listen to this, because lower class families who were aware, aware that there was this high infant mortality rate, they would start these rainy day funeral funds for their kids just in case. But there is a twisted catch to this, which is that sometimes saving in these funeral funds for the potential funerals of their children meant that parents were ignoring the actual necessities of life that would keep their children alive longer and in better health. Yeah, so that's, that's so backwards. It's hard to fathom that like that's how important a quality funeral was, you know, compared to a child's health in the in the real time. You know, it's it's what I call putting the cart before the hearse, so to speak. Elise, I hate that you made that joke. <laughs> I cringed, but yes, I love it. You loved it. You loved I do. it. And again, we are we are definitely not trying to make light of obviously what is a ton of tragedy. Yeah. Not at all. Um, it, this was a long time ago and, you know, but it is, it is, I think from our, our privileged modern day perspective, it is kind of a culture shock to think about, you know? Yeah. It, it's cause it is, you know, the complete opposite of what we, I think mm-hmm. humanity, you value your life. And I understand taking death is very important, but what's going on here is that they seem to value death and dying more than they do life. And they value mourning and like almost like this performative aspect of mourning. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, over time, a code for mourning developed that people, especially of certain social standing, were expected to uphold. So mourning was divided into three periods, deep mourning, second mourning and half mourning. And Elise, this is not to be confused with second breakfast, okay? (laughs) I actually had second breakfast this week. And if you're not a Lord of the Rings fan, I mean, well, first of all, I feel sorry for you. But second of all, it it gives you the opportunity to, without shame, have a second breakfast. Everybody should be having second breakfast. Agreed. That should be part of, (laughs) if you and I wrote a guide to morning, (laughs) it would definitely include a second breakfast. (laughs) Women, of course, uh, were expected to mourn the hardest 
Jess. Uh, We were doing some power morning back then. (laughs) We were just good at it. You know, that's why it was us, because we were just so good at it. Mm -hmm. That's probably why. Mm -hmm. I think, I think, you know, obviously Queen Victoria, she set the tone here and women in the Victorian area were expected to mourn for two years following their husband's death and were prohibited from social interaction during this time. So you couldn't like go to hang out in the parlor of your friend's home with them. It's like forced depression. (laughs) It kind of is forced depression. And, you know, not just that, but you really had to change your entire being to put on this performative sense of outward public mourning. And not to detract from, I'm sure, people who genuinely were distraught and just completely inconsolable about the loss of a loved one. But there was also this expectation of you have to do this. Otherwise, you are going to be ostracized by polite society. And that came down to even just having to change your clothes as you mourned. Right, Jess? Yeah. Women were expected to wear dresses made from crepe because the fabric was stiff and scratchy and you couldn't really style it with other fabrics. So it meant that you weren't fashionable. So during this time of mourning, also make sure that you're not fashionable. So <laughs> yeah. here's some crepe because yeah. you can't style it anyway. Like, it really geez. was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, you you do see this sometimes today, but women also wore weeping veils, you know, mm-hmm. and um, different colored ribbons and other insignia that would indicate that a woman was in a period of mourning. So... Yep. Uh, Women also wore jewelry and other adornments made from a lock of their beloved's hair. And this is my kind of favorite thing, only because in the movie Crimson Peak, you can see the main character, Edith, is wearing this like braided hair belt that is made from her dead mother's hair, which is like super informative to the character and the era. And it's also got these like little porcelain hands on it. It's it's like a really, really interesting and niche detail of the time. So kudos to the costume designer on Crimson Peak. After some time, women could pivot to half mourning attire and were permitted to wear dark colors like gray or purple. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, mourning was women's work and was ingrained at a very young age. Girls were given dolls that had black mourning clothes in a little coffin (laughs) so they could practice laying the doll out and any associated mourning rituals. You know, it's a lot different than the bead blast Barbie I had. When I was growing up, but I think that I would have enjoyed it. (laughs) Yeah, I I did think about you when I read that. I was like, this is Elise (laughs) as a child. Oh, no. I I do think like this whole it goes back to the performative and the social mores aspect of it and the the idea that you have to to do these things to be accepted in polite society. The idea that, you know, parents were giving little girls and again, morning being women's work, giving little girls these dolls and these settings and saying like, you have to practice this because this is going to be a big part of your life. It's, it's a lot to think about. And especially with, I think how protective we are of children now, it's, it's like kind of unreal to think of. Question for you, Jess. Yes. Would we think if we were in this era that this is all that shocking? Probably. I mean, not to color your answer, but. I don't think in this era, no. I don't think it's all that shocking. No. And I I think maybe even like you would be grateful that you had the money that you could do this for your children. That is true. Touche. To understand the world. Um, Of course, for men, it was a little bit different. Uh, A black ribbon around the hat and black gloves sufficed. And men were also expected to remarry 
quickly. So they didn't have to endure as long a mourning period publicly. In the case of children mourning their parents, though, and vice versa, about a year was normal. And if someone living during the Victorian era was uncertain about a particular mourning custom, they could look at these household manuals of the time, one being Castle's Household Guide, which outlined the proper etiquette. So all these things that we've outlined that you had to do to be accepted in society, there were written guides that told you exactly what to do. Imagine having an etiquette guide to reference now and not just relying on like TikTok. No. Like, (laughs) oh, how do I eat this? I always think of Titanic too. Titanic, Kathy Bates, I forget her character name, but she's the unsinkable Molly Brown in that. That's it. That's it. She brings Leo to the dinner because he saved Kate Winslet from falling. And Mm -hmm. he's like, which which fork do I use first? And she's like, just start from the outside and work your way in. And I always think like, I have never, I took an etiquette class like once when I was in Girl Scouts. Yes. Really? What did you learn? It was just like table etiquette and manners. It wasn't like me, you know, walking up and down with books on my head or anything anything like that. It was just like learning how to eat properly, how to actually eat soup correctly with the spoon. Um, I, of course, I do not do any of this now. I eat like I was a going to woman. Ask, is there a wrong way to eat soup? Have I been eating soup <laughs> no, the wrong way? No, it's, it's, there is no, in my opinion, there's no wrong way to eat, eat soup, but there is a, you know, t- your typical like etiquette way to eat soup. Um, and so that was one of the things I learned in Girl Scout. But um, but back to morning. Yes, back to morning. So with so much attention and time given to it, morning became a business. And this is where we actually see the roots of today's funeral industry. Modern funeral parlors look the way they do because the early ones mimicked these Victorian funerals, which took place in the home. Mm-hmm. That actually makes a lot of sense. I didn't, I didn't really know that. Like when you walk into a funeral parlor, it, it does, it's very homey, very inviting. Um, I was like, oh, this makes it sense. It does. And it still has that kind of aesthetic because imagine if they updated it and you walked into a funeral home now and there were all kinds of like Funko Pops, you know, on the shelves and stuff. Hey, to everybody listening, you don't have to laugh at Elise's jokes if you don't want to. So Jessica does, though. Actually, it's in the contract. That's why some of them are fake. <laughs> no, just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, to this point about, you know, the, the funeral home parlors looking like the way that Victorian homes did uh, for wealthy families, funerals would have both a home and church component. So you would maybe start in the home and then make your way to the church And uh, this is where the people who got invited, and yes, you had to be invited. You couldn't just go to a funeral. Like you couldn't just read an obituary in the paper and show up. Uh, (laughs) They would come and give their condolences. And, you know, if you're attending a funeral in 2022, you might go to a funeral home, a church, a cemetery, or wherever you observe, you know, your, your religious practices and, uh, or, or according to the deceased wishes. But Our modern funeral processions are still modeled after the customs established in the Victorian era in which a multi-carriage procession would take the deceased to their final resting place. So, you know, now we have these processions where you're in a long line of cars going from the funeral Mm -hmm. home to the to the church. And that's what it's modeled after. Yeah. And in this carriage procession they did, who sat in which carriage depended on your standing. So if you were a member of the clergy, you probably would be closer to the front or family what have you. Mm -hmm. And the color of the hearse carriage was traditionally black, but it could be smaller and white if the deceased was a child. (sighs) 
That's sad. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were poor and couldn't afford a funeral, or maybe you lived in a workhouse, you would be given what is called a pauper's funeral, So, which was like the bare minimum of rituals required under poor law, the 1834 poor law. If you're not familiar with it, it was meant to give relief to the poor and ensure that those living in workhouses had basic shelter, clothing, and food. It's It's like fascinating to kind of go back and look at these workhouses and stuff and um, just the conditions of people being used in this new industrial chain and really being cogs in the system, mm-hmm. you know, nothing more. I mean, haha, capitalism, <laughs> but you know, that's, that's what it was. Yes. Another big way the dead were commemorated beyond the funerary experience was through death photography. And this is something that I feel like everybody, especially if you're interested in this kind of subject matter, you come across it online at some point and you see examples of it. You know, you're looking Mm -hmm. at historical photos and death photography comes up. Like, have you ever just casually, you know, been browsing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. For sure. And by the mid-19th century, it was really commonplace to take pictures of the deceased after they died to have as a lasting keepsake. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time, the family would be posed alongside the deceased. So, Like sometimes very young children looked like they were sleeping. (laughs) Yeah. Or I mean, even adults kind of looked like they were sleeping. And with the high infant mortality rate, it was especially common for children to have their portrait taken after death. And then that might be the only existing photo that parents had of this particular child. Again, so weird to me that it was like yeah all about death and mourning and like not about their actual life. Yes. And and it's the kind of thing too where you know, photography toward the beginning of the Victorian era, it wasn't as common to be able to afford or get a photograph taken. But Mm. by the end, it was it was pretty common. So Mm -hmm. you would probably have a picture of your family member while they were alive, too. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, In many cases, the deceased were propped up to appear lifelike imposed alongside siblings, parents and other family members. And in some extreme circumstances, eyes were painted on the photo after the fact to make the person appear awake and alive. Oh, not, not unlike Wesley Snipes in Blade 3, which I, I highly recommend everyone Googles, which is a, I know, it's a stunning. You just watched it recently. Stunning saga in the Blade trilogy. Something that, you know, we do now in present day mortician practices is, and and Jess, I know that you are interested in this is morticians, they use different tools to keep to keep the eyes of the deceased closed or the mouth of the deceased closed. I feel like we could do a whole episode on we, we, oh, we that. Will. Yeah. But this is this was like the opposite because now it's like you, you know, a mortician is preparing a body and they want to use these little spiked apparatuses that will keep the eyes from opening because mm-hmm. the last thing you want with the deceased in the casket for a viewing is the eyes to roll up, right? Woo, just got chills. Sorry. <laughs> but, <laughs> but back then it was like, oh no, we got to keep these eyes open. So it's it's interesting how our own societal mores change, you know, yeah. of in, in stigmas and stuff like that. Yep. And uh, one of the one of the things that I never really thought about but is really interesting to note when you look at these photographs is how clear the dead ap- appear compared to their living counterparts. And this, it makes total sense, was due to the long exposure of the photographs and the difference in stillness between a living person and a dead person. So like still 
you know, a living person is still as they can hold themselves. There's still going to be a little bit of a a shake just because you're alive and you're breathing, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, however, the dead are not moving. They're not breathing. They're just propped and camped and clamped in place. So when long exposure is an issue, they're going to appear more still in a photo than maybe even a living person. So while it's a, a big deal is made about these posing stands that were used for the deceased. It was also something that the living used to counter this long expo- exposure blur too. Mm-hmm. And alongside these mourning portraits, some photographers exploited the grieving by taking spirit photographs, which I feel like these, you can find these at like a store down the street or something like a quarter store. Yeah. I feel like I've seen these everywhere. Where <laughs> yeah, I feel like these little macabre store, you know, these yeah. niche kind of like, or vintage or antique Mm -hmm. stores will have stuff like Mm -hmm. this. Yeah. Um, But, you know, of course they were uh, exploiting, you know, the grieving Mm -hmm. by doing this. You know, they they would use glass glass plates and other deceptive methods to take photos of a living person and make it look like there were actually spirits standing or seated uh, next to them. Mm -hmm. I just, I feel like they were just so desperate, I don't know, to believe in something bigger or... Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're just. Yeah, I I think of this as the original deep fake. Yeah, (laughs) it was, and people paid good money for it. Um, you know, these spirit photographers offered something more to the living, not just for remembering lost loved ones, but see, yeah, confirmation of life after death. And Mm -hmm. I have a quote here by English scholar Jen Cadwallader. Spirit photography serves as a stage where Victorians could plot out a reassuring version of the afterlife, particularly in an age of eroding faith. This makes complete sense as to why they're doing all of this Mm -hmm. now, you know? Yep. And then you have to ask, why was this an age of eroding faith? Because, Mm -hmm. like, Christianity was still the prevalent religion in Victorian-era England. However... As we mentioned at the top of this podcast, you have scientific advancements and new ideas like Darwin's origin of the species, and this is creating friction between secularism, aka science, and religion. And this preoccupation with death also allowed for the rise of spiritualism, which is a movement like science that was based in sensory empirical evidence. And that meant that people tried to produce physical evidence that there was an afterlife and that the dead could be communicated with rather than previously just relying solely on faith. Mm -hmm. So once the spiritualism movement caught on, normal people started holding seances, sometimes public, but mostly private, and hiring mediums to try and reach out and talk to their dead relatives. It was a uniquely new world American concept that took root after the devastation of the American Civil War. But it's easy to see how this could also gain footing in the Victorian society as well. Yeah. And I guess I never really tied it to the American Civil War, but it makes sense because you Mm -hmm. have this huge loss of life and people trying to justify and communicate. Um, And there are many well-known public figures that dabbled in spiritualism. Queen Victoria was one. She tried to communicate with uh, her husband, obviously, and then her daughter tried to communicate with her when she passed. Mark Twain was another. He visited mediums. Mm. Um, my favorite, though, and you can read more about this, is Arthur Conan Doyle mm-hmm. because he, you know, we know him as the writer of the Sherlock Holmes series, but he mm-hmm. is one of the most well-known spiritualists. And he even wrote several books on the subject. And Harry Houdini and he were great f- friends, but Houdini would also kind of like 
make fun of Conan Doyle a little bit <laughs> for his, you know, obsession with this. Mm hmm. So we have to mention superstition, which society starts to lean really hard into during the century, because when you're grieving, you're not always thinking rationally. And when the rate of death is so, so high, it's hard to imagine that there aren't bigger metaphysical answers for what's happening around you. So superstition helped a lot of people feel like they could have some sense of control, which I completely understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but I mean... We thought it'd be interesting to talk about some of the common ones at the time. And we found some of these from these were all taken from the Victorian historian.com. Let's hit it, Jess. <laughs> Let's do it. So the first one, if several deaths occur in the same family, tie a black ribbon to everything left alive that enters the house, even dogs and chickens. This will protect against death spreading further. OK, I dig it. Uh, this next one, you should always cover your mouth while yawning so your spirit doesn't leave you and the devil never enters your body. I guess this idea is that while you are yawning, you're you're not completely on guard. So you, you let your guard down and maybe the devil can get in. And let me tell you, Jess, if the devil's getting into my body, it's not through my, my mouth. <laughs> okay. I know where he's coming for you. Okay. <laughs> but, but also like you should always cover your mouth while yawning. Like sometimes I just have my mouth wide open during the day. So mm -hmm. do I just need to have it closed at all times? <laughs> it is bad luck to meet a funeral procession head on. If you see one approaching, turn around. If this is unavoidable, hold on to a button until the funeral procession passes. So I guess like button, it's funny because when I first read this, I thought it meant like, like a button, like that you would press on a keyboard or something. <laughs> I know. I, that's why I'm laughing. Yeah. Like the button like thing is hilarious. Press the giant red button in that glass case. But no, it's like a button on your jacket or whatever. Yeah. Shirt. But even that's funny to me. I don't know. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, to lock the door of your home after a funeral procession has left the house is bad luck. If I had to think of why, it's like, oh, well, if there are still lingering spirits in the house, you want them to be able to get out. Mm -hmm. You know? That makes sense. These next ones are all like, if blank happens, then you are going to die. <laughs> and there are a lot of these in Victorian suspicions, which is like, if X and Y happen, then you will die. If a firefly lightning bug gets into your house, someone will soon die. If you smell roses when none are around, someone will soon die. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, this next one I like because I, we've talked about this. This is like a childhood memory to a degree. But if you don't hold your breath while going by a graveyard, you will not be buried at the time of your passing. Mm -hmm. Like for me, when I was a kid, it was just like you're on the bus going past yeah. a graveyard and someone's like, hold your breath and lift your feet or the spirits will get you. Yes. Yeah. I love how like some of these have translated over time a little differently, but to present day. Mm -hmm. um, this one cracks me up because if you see an owl in the daytime, there will be death. Mm -hmm. Now, I personally did not see an owl, but I can swear to whoever is above that I heard an owl and I thought of these superstitions and I legitimately was like, oh, wait, oh, shit. Did, uh, let me ask you a question. Did it sound kind of like this? Ooh, ooh. Yes. Just, <laughs> was it you? Just that was me under your window making owl sounds. <laughs> of course it was. <laughs> of course it was. I should always assume that anything that you're just always around, yes, period. You're always around. <laughs> you know who else is always around? Birds. Because there are a lot of superstitions about birds. 
such as if a bird pecks on your window or crashes into one, there has been a death. And if a sparrow lands on a piano, someone in the home will die. These but damn birds. I get that because like in horror movies, there's, a, there's always a bird flying into a window and it scares mm-hmm. everybody. And then, you know. Yep. Yep. Another, you know, kind of horror movie trope. If a picture falls off the wall, there will be a death of someone you know. Mm-hmm. And then you pick up the picture and the crack in the glass is directly over the face. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yes. Dropping an umbrella on the floor or opening one in the house means that there will be a murder in the house. I thought it was bad luck. This is a little yeah. extra. Yeah. We know about the bad luck umbrella in a house. I didn't know there will be a murder in the house. Mm-hmm. Corpses should be removed from the household feet first to prevent the spirit from looking back and beckoning another member in the family to follow. This is the creepiest one to me. It is. Because I can see the image in my head. Mm-hmm. Me and too. And I don't like it. Yep. Um, after a loved one has passed away, pray and cover all mirrors in the house to prevent the spirit of the deceased from hiding there. Also beware that the next reflection scene in the mirror shall be the next to die. Okay. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> I like that you say you just accept it. Okay. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no thanks at the same time. Yeah. You should stop the clock at the time of a deceased's passing in order to avoid your own untimely death. Hmm. Makes sense. I- <laughs> Yeah, okay. Um, A dog howling at night when someone in the house is sick is a bad omen. It can be reversed by reaching under the bed and turning over a shoe. How'd they figure this one out? I don't know. How did someone come to the conclusion that if all these factors are in play, you reach under the bed, you turn over a shoe? I know. It's just, it's, I don't know. I love it. It's so bonkers. It's definitely, definitely someone had a very specific incident and then went and told their village neighbor like well i did this shoe thing (laughs) and it seemed to work or maybe like maybe like on their way out the door they trip over a shoe or something and they're like oh wait somehow this worked Mm -hmm. and now (laughs) i have to turn over the shoe (laughs) moving forward this shoe for the rest of my life Uh, (laughs) timmy's got a cough turn over the clog well yeah that's an end to our first episode. Hooray. No better place to start than one of the most morbidly fascinating errors in history. Yeah. And I, again, we're not trying to make light of any of this. I think that obviously we're going to talk about a lot of serious subjects in this show and try to handle them with the utmost respect and care. I do think there's been a long time that has passed. So we can kind of yes. look at these superstitions and maybe think they're a little bit outdated. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but the Victorian era is this deep, deep, deep well of the morbid. So expect us to return to it again and again, you know, here and there throughout our show. Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, we, we are two people who have, I think, approached this subject matter in very different ways, but we Mm -hmm. kind of meet in the middle in a, in a fun sense. And you might know us from Rooster Teeth. As I mentioned, I'm Elise Willems, and I am a producer and performer there. And professionally, Jess and I were both performers and producers and writers and filmmakers and creatives. Yeah. Personally, we're friends. We actually did meet at Rooster Teeth. Mm -hmm. Friends that have a really fun, twisted kind of friendship where one tortures the other, specifically in the way that like Elise tortures me. I can't help it. (laughs) You make it so fun. And, And I do, I will say... Uh, I am the kind of person that I am not so sensitive to dark material. I like horror movies. I like reading about the macabre. 
And I find myself often at 3 a.m., you know, not sleeping and spiraling down these Wikipedia and Reddit rabbit holes, reading about this all kind of, you know, it's because that's stuff. the devil's hour, Elise. <laughs> That it three we all know three a.m. is the devil's hour. Conversely, if you haven't noticed, Jessica is not really that kind of person. <laughs> Mainly because she refers to it as the devil's hour. <laughs> exactly. No, that is that's very telling. Yeah, I am very much a super curious person about anything and everything. I can ask a million questions about the simplest thing ever. My therapist tells me I just need to know the answers to everything and the answer why to everything. And she's like, sometimes you just need to be comfortable with not knowing <laughs> things. And I tell her like, well, so so at night or at any time of the day, somebody will tell me something, I'll see something on TV. I'm like, oh, I want to learn about that. Oh, this is crazy. And sometimes I'm like completely fascinated, um, blown away. And then other times I'm like, how did I end up in this deep, deep, dark, hole where now I'm unhappy in this oh, hole. <laughs> I, that, that is one of the Where things. you thrive, Elise. <laughs> yeah, I'm down there. I'm like, who's coming in? Oh, Jessica? Yeah. Great. That is one of the things I love about you, though, because you ask really good questions and the right questions. Sometimes inappropriate questions. Sometimes, Sometimes I'll just ask without thinking, and that's not good all the time. You know, so. but you keep people on their toes, and I think you're going to ask some of the questions in this podcast that I, I might forget to ask, which is good. Okay. A yin and yang. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, we definitely have a just well of topics that we can cover in this show. Like, I feel like every day we we're messaging each other saying, oh, there's the, well, we, what about this or what about this? But we do have a few that we, we know for sure we want to cover in this first season, including, you know, Mount Everest deaths and Ouija boards and weird, great weird Robin. alien stuff. Weird <laughs> alien stuff. Uh huh. <laughs> just that's just to a T. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I messaged Elise the other day about math, which probably we 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 won't discuss on this podcast. But just like, where did math come from? You know? Yeah. And like, who came up with math? We as humans to try and better understand our world, we just decided to come up with like weird numbers and alphabet letters, combine them together for math. What is that? It was definitely left field. And I really had to rope her in on this <laughs> and say, this is not a podcast about math. Unless you can tie math in some way to, you know, a, a I'll find a way. Ancient demonology. Uh, but she, yeah, she will definitely find a way that I'm not surprised about. Any topics that are off limits for you, Jess? Um, I would I would say demon stuff. Honestly, I was raised Catholic that I am not Catholic anymore, but um, that's that shit sticks with you. <laughs> well, I think that's maybe too bad because our next episode, we are talking about sleep paralysis. Actually, I am 100 percent down to talk about sleep paralysis. I experience sleep paralysis, oh. so I can handle that demon stuff because I know where you're going with this. Wow. That's actually surprising because I thought it would be much longer until we had an expert on the podcast. But you are going to be that for sleep paralysis. I am the expert on sleep. I don't, I want to be an expert in something else. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> maybe math. Maybe math once okay, you learn where it perfect. came from. <laughs> I told you guys from the beginning, I am not good at math. You were oh. telling me some statistic earlier and I was like, I don't know what this means. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, while Jess reads about math, there's a lot more reading that you can do about the Victorian era online and at your local library. We also, we're going to try to put all of the resources that we use, we're going to link them in our description, too. So if you want to kind of plumb deeper into the stuff that we've been reading about, you can check it out there. 
but uh, to talk about, you know, the Victorian era obsession with death, dying and and more beyond that, tweet us at Elise Willems, at Jessica Vasami and at 30 Morbid Minutes. We'll also be sharing like if we have interesting assets, you know, pictures, maybe we'll we'll post some death photography for this episode. We're going to share all that kind of good stuff. And uh, yeah, and in, in preparation for our sleep paralysis episode, too, if you have any experiences, share them with us because we, we want to hear about them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the only thing left is to give us a really cool nickname, Jess. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm kind of thinking the gruesome twosome. I love it. Wait, mm-hmm. are we sure it's not taken, though? I guess our lawyers are going to find out. Oh.